Hey guys, Brandon here. We'll get you to the show in just a second. And if you want to listen to that 90s baseball pod early and ad-free, make sure to sign up at patreon.com slash that 90s baseball pod. Subscribers at any level get the show as soon as it's created, early and ad-free. Now, for our sponsors, we have eParade, which is reasonably priced, trendy kitchenware. That's E-P-A-R-E dot com. Promo code 10, T90BP10. So, that 90s baseball pod, T90BP, with 10 on either side. Symbol.app, that's S-I-M-B-U-L-L dot app, is the stock market for sports. If you use the promo code BENDER, you get a free week of Symbol Gold. Hinterland Coffee in Minnesota is a freshly roasted coffee experience every single week. Monthly subscriptions get 10% off. Go to hinterlandmn.com. Three-star sports cards, you can find them online or in person in Bloomington on Lindale Avenue or in Little Canada on Rice Street or threestarsportscards.com. And finally, Humility Chains. Royce Lewis's mom, Cindy, makes stylish, affordable chains and necklaces and bracelets that go, uh, the proceeds go directly to the Nigu Foundation to help children fighting cancer. So a portion, again, of those proceeds go to the Nigu Foundation to help children fighting cancer cancer more than 20 styles of chains and bracelets are available they're affordable they look great i'm wearing mine right now i highly recommend them it's humility chains on etsy so look up etsy and then search for humility chains and now on to your show Well, hello once again. It is that 90s baseball pod, and across the screen from me is Mr. Greg Olson. Greg, I feel like I barely recognize you anymore. I know. We've missed, uh, missed the Christmas break, New Year's, and uh, getting back at it. So you can follow him on Twitter at G-R-E-G-G-O-L-S-O-N 30, making sure I still remember that. Did you have a good holiday season? I did. I did. I, I was afraid you were going to go with the G-R-E-G-O-L-S-E-N-88, and uh, I've been getting enough of the tight ends tweets on uh, Twitter, so <laughs> thanks for getting that right for me. I, well, I think I saw someone mess with you about that on Twitter the other day, uh, intentionally, not unintentionally, but um, I, I'm Brandon Warren, by the way. If you've been listening to the show, you figured that out. You can follow me on Twitter at Brandon underscore Warren. Um, I won't dance around it too long, though. We do have a very fun and very special guest. And <clears throat> I don't really know how else to dive into it. It's Ruben Amaro Jr. Ruben, thank you for coming on. And it's great to, great to be with you, both you guys. You, Greg, uh, it'll be fun. Yeah, I'm and, looking forward to it. And the connection between you two, uh, 
piecing things together. Does it start in 1995 or was it before that? Well, I think for me, it was before that because I had to face him in spring training. Fortunately, I'd have to spring face him ever during the season because that breaking ball was ridiculous. And yeah. I, I, remember, I remember facing him in spring training one time when he was with Baltimore. And I think, where were you guys uh, stationed then? We were, we were close to him. I think maybe you were in Sarasota. You probably just you know, probably came over or whatever and, and uh, or came up. And I, re- I think I was leading off. And I think you, you probably came in early in the game because they were having the closures come in early. I can't remember how it worked. But I remember seeing that breaking ball and going, there is no way I can play in the big leagues against this. <laughs> <laughs> Mom, I'm coming home. Greg Olson's firing breaking balls. I got no chance. Oh, God, that's funny. Well, you can thank the big man upstairs that interleague play didn't exist at that point so that you didn't have to face him, at least not oh. right away. And we'll, we'll talk about Buffalo, but um, <clears throat> people can follow you on Twitter at R-A-J-R underscore 20. And you did say one thing you'd like to talk about is actually if people are watching on YouTube, the hat that you're wearing right now, you've got something very special that you're working on with your brother. Yeah, my brother David Amaro and myself, my brother's been involved in youth baseball with the uh, with the Philly Bandits for a long time. But um, we decided to form a group called Amaro Sports. We're on AmaroSports.com. It's basically an advisory group to give, you know, parents and the kids uh, at least a path as to where to go with their with their youngster and uh, and how to handle them. We're very honest with them. Um we try to give them the tools. We help evaluate them. And uh, my brother's got tremendous connections all up and down the East Coast, Division One, Two, Three schools. Uh, again, he's had uh, a lot of players uh, over the course of the time uh, in youth baseball who've had a lot of success. And uh, we're just hoping to help advise some folks and, and uh, give them the right, uh, the right tools to, to learn how to play the game and make sure that they understand what it is that college players or college coaches are looking for in that player, the way they comport themselves, the way they handle themselves, uh, the way to be professional and that sort of thing. So that's what we're doing. What, uh, what, I mean, I, you know, with, with colleges recruiting 14 year olds now, I mean, you're, yep. you're starting at that age, you're starting a little bit earlier with the kids that have some uh, ability. What do you, what do you, what are you tar- talking about? Yeah. So we're talking, we're starting with teens, but we're not that we, we like to try to stay away from those and, and at least advise them and advise the parents as to what the do's and don'ts are of, uh, of being involved in. I mean, that to me, it's 13, 14, 15. That's just too early. Um, and, and, and I think it's just, for me, it's more about uh, having them understand the importance of what it is to be a teammate uh, you know, working on their craft, but not killing themselves with the craft. We believe in, you know, having guys play a variety of sports and, and those sorts of things. So there's different things that we like to advise them to do um, that may be a little different from the way other, other people think. I mean, I, I always believed in being able to play as many sports as you can to try to be as diverse as you possibly can athletically, uh, because I think we're just we're funneling kids into certain spots. Let them play all the positions, you know, don't lock them into being a shortstop or a pitcher or whatever the case may be. I mean, I started off as a I started off as an infielder because my dad was an infielder. I mean, I was left-handed. I taught myself how to throw right-handed. I mean, uh, just because my, just because I probably should have stayed from the left side and played in the outfield left-handed, but, um, but I was, you know, made myself an infielder because my brother was an infielder. My dad was a, was right-handed. So um, to me, it's about, it's about making sure that we um, have as diverse a player as possible and to give them those kids a real quality break of time from baseball. 
they need their physically they and mentally they need time away from baseball to play other sports there's a, there's a lot of things that we can advise them to do but um but as they get older and older and it gets a little bit more specific and guys get uh, you know start start to get a little bit more specified in their talents you know then there's other ways to, to go about it but i think as just youngsters uh i think it's just let them be athletes let them let them, let them be athletes that, that feels like something our friend Jeff Fry would buy into um, <laughs> yeah. as a basketball player and a guy who thinks that baseball has gotten a little bit hyper-specialized. How, how much of your experience do you call back on for that? Uh, I don't know your amateur experience in terms of other sports, but you did play in college at Stanford, did not get drafted out of high school. So in some ways you can speak to what the, these kids are doing on a personal level. Is it... Um, is there any learning from your mistakes? Is it, this is what I did and it worked for me. It might not work for you. What, what does that look like um, with each player that you work with? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm a perfect example. I, I thought I was going to end up being a soccer player. I was a much better soccer player um, through high school. I was an all American out of high school. Um, I did not, I sort of let people know that I, uh, that baseball became like the sport that I enjoyed the most. And that's what I wanted to play. There was a thought that I might go and play, uh, in a couple of different schools, I was recruited to Duke uh, being one of them where um, my brother went. Um, I was considering maybe playing two sports, uh, but I ended up gravitating towards baseball just because I fell in love with it a little bit more. But but for me, it was, it was always about making sure I played as many sports as I possibly could, because I think I needed physically. I just needed a different break. I just needed uh, time away from it. And, uh, and it. And and I think it really helped. It helped round me out as a baseball player. The fact that I was, you know, it was great for me cardiovascularly and keeping myself in shape playing soccer. And then I even swam one year. I did play some basketball. I wasn't a very good basketball player, but it allowed you to, you know, utilize a lot of different um, parts of your body and skill sets and, and athleticism, teamwork, uh, different ways of being a teammate and, and understanding the, the importance of that. And so I draw on some of those, uh, some of those things. And then, you know, I, I, I try to push my kids, my, both of them were soccer players, my two daughters were soccer players, um, to try to be as diverse as possible. They ended up playing a little bit more soccer than anything else, but they did play basketball and some other things. They never went and played collegiately. My, my eldest did play um, on club sport in, uh, at Wake Forest, uh, which was pretty competitive. But, um, but to me, it's, you can't really push people into doing these things. You got to kind of let it happen naturally. And, and I think that's the most important part is let, let the kids play let the kids play and enjoy the sport and let them gravitate to the sport they really like. Well, and I, I'm sure it helps that they're seeking you out. It's not, you know, when you have children, they're going to lean on you for advice, no matter what, if kids are seeking you out, they're already kind of taking that first step towards, I see your vision. And I think it could at least somewhat apply to me. Yeah. And I think it's important to, to, to mm -hmm. note that I mean, my brother, like I said, is a, uh, He's been involved in youth baseball for a long, long time. The Philly Bandits is a uh, it is stalwart in a lot of ways and very well known. And my brother's one of those guys that always believed in teaching kids how to play baseball the right way. That's that's all it's, what it, you know, what it's mm -hmm. about. If you want to play my sport, you play my sport right, uh, and and you make sure that the he's very very uh, specific and adamant about like listen, parents, let mm -hmm. me take care of this. I got it covered. Uh, the good players are going to play. The players who not are as good are not going to play as much. Uh, we're, we're not, you know, given <laughs> we're not giving medals out to everybody. Um, but that's that's in a later, more uh, more established uh, 
you know, level of baseball. And, and I think that's, uh, you know, that, that's what we're trying to teach kids that they have to earn their right to, uh, to have success. Very nice. That, I mean, it, it's funny because, yeah, my, my Brandon says Jeff Fry came on and pretty much <laughs> verbatim was about the same thing, playing different sports. And, and it was it was a fun part of being in the clubhouse was, you know, everybody did something different and everybody, you know, you didn't have anybody that played baseball only. Everybody was a quarterback or, you know, you go through it, point guard, forward, something. They all did something. <laughs> other than baseball and that was what you know like I said it was fun just because you can go back and forth with guys on it but it was what made everybody what we were we weren't specialized into one sport and I love the fact that you bring that up because it's it's getting lost and um, I find it funny that it, it comes down to a bunch of ex-major leaguers sitting around going you guys need to do more something different go spend some yeah. time get away from the game and I'll put my GM hat on and, and talk about um, some of the, my greatest scouts uh, were ones who were had the ability to go in and see guys in the offseason and watch them play basketball on their high school team or, or watch them, you know, play whatever sport they were, you know, other sport, maybe football, whatever the case may be, just to see what kind of teammates they were, mm -hmm. just to see what kind of athletes they were, to see how diverse they were in their ability to, to make adjustments, uh, you know, uh, in, in different situations and that, and that sort of thing. And, and, uh, and I just think it's, it, it, it gives an advantage to a player to be able to have, um, that level of diversity, um, because you, you think differently as an athlete in playing a different sports. I mean, you, you create, uh, competition differently. You, you attack competition differently. And I think it's an important part of, building yourself as an athlete and uh for, for a lot of guys uh, their hopes are to uh to to be it you know professionals so as as a gm you know was, was that part of the conversation obviously you said your best scouts were out there doing this but was that part of your uh thought process your ideals of of getting multi-sport guys you know great, great athletes and getting them in the system and letting them figure out all right, you know what? Yeah, let's let's move him out into the outfield. He's better out there than he would be in the infield. Was that your thought process? Yeah, I mean, to me, it was that was my whole thought process when it came to signing guys who were free agents and signing guys who, when I say amateur free agents, uh, in the draft. I mean, I wanted to get the best player, the best athlete available, and hope that he can build wherever that. You know, I mean, he may have been a shortstop as a, as a draftee or that's the only thing he played in high school, but he could eventually be a great center fielder or a left fielder or whatever the case may be, or maybe even a catcher. Um, I, I think of some of the guys that we uh, that we signed. Uh, Carlos Ruiz, for instance, was signed for like four thousand bucks out of Panama. He was a second base, little second baseman, and he ended up being, you know, an all star level catcher who caught the last pitch of the World Series in 2008. So. Um, you know, I, I think it's so important just to bring talent into your system, which is one of the fears that I have now what's happening with baseball. The draft is so confined that you may be missing some guys that somewhere down the road will develop to become pretty good players. And I think we're just cutting down our, our, our talent pool so much. And it's, it's frightening to me as a sport. Is yeah. uh Go ahead, Brandon. Well, I don't want to leave any meat on the bone here, but I, I do, in case you had more questions, but I do have to ask, um, 
not because I'm not prepared, but because I w- wouldn't know where to even look this up. How many guys do you think have been a GM and a first base coach? It's got to be a, a pretty small list, doesn't it? I don't think there's anybody's ever done that. I mean, I, awesome. I and, and and I think I was the first guy. I know Billy Bean had basically come off the off the field and and then went into a front office, but I went right into from uh, my last game in September 29th of 98. I was playing the outfield for the Phillies and in October 1st of 98 I was the assistant GM for the Phillies. So it's I've been very very fortunate to get the opportunities that I've gotten. Uh, they've had a lot of the Phillies had a uh, David Montgomery and, and Ed Wade, who was my very first boss as a GM mm-hmm. was uh, had a lot of faith in me as a, as a person and as a baseball person. And I uh, was been very fortunate in that regard, but I love the game of baseball and people were questioning why I would be go from being a GM to being a first base coach. I love baseball period in the game. It's, it's my career. It's what I believe in. I love the people that I got to, to, to coach with. I basically played with every single one of those guys in Boston. Yeah. Uh, when John Farrell asked me and gave me the opportunity to come on with them, I mean, I played with John Farrell. Uh, I played with uh, Vic Rodriguez, who was one of our hitting coaches. I played with Chili Davis. I played with uh, Tory Lovello or played against him. Mm-hmm. I, uh, and then it was Gary DeSarcina after that. I played with him in the Angels organization. It was It was literally like a... For me, it was it was a little bit like a fraternity. It was awesome. I, I loved every minute of it. Um, I enjoyed every minute of it. I learned a lot from Brian Butterfield, who was a long, long, long time yep. coach. Yeah, that's a, um, right there. Uh, he, was, right there. He, he's, he, he is, um, and I know he's at home now, but just a spectacular third base coach and a great coach overall and, and somebody I've gotten to know and love. Um, it was just like a dream job to me. Um, I, I know it was a little unorthodox, but Hey man, it was the Boston Red Sox and it was a great franchise, a great organization. And uh, I got to great work with great people and great players, Jackie Bradley and mm-hmm. Ben Attendee and Mookie Betts and right. big poppy. I mean, who, who wouldn't want to do that? So actually the news broke today that uh, the angels are hiring Ray Montgomery out of their front office to be their bench coach. So uh, maybe you set the, uh, maybe you set the stage, you, <laughs> you built the mold for that, but um I had actually, I was like, I, I thought I saw that on Twitter today that something like that had come up and that's what kind of triggered my, my mind to remember to ask you about that. But um, yeah, so it's a, it definitely an unconventional path, uh, not to get into it necessarily, but later on in your, your career, which is, uh, which is very cool. Uh, you got to give me a Brian Butterfield story. Uh-oh. Oh my, oh my goodness gracious. <laughs> so many of them. So Brian was very, very particular about certain things. So uh, I'll give you this quick one. Uh, I'm a rookie coach, right? Uh, I think I had some respect from, uh, from, from Butter just because, you know, I had been around in the game uh, in a lot of different areas. Uh, we're hitting fungos and we go into, we usually do our defense before uh, BP. So we were finished with our defensive drills and I took my, grabbed my fungo and walked out to the, to the outfield and butter was kind of hanging around first base and he still had some more fungal work to do with the infielders. And I hear somebody just screaming. I'm in center field and I'm standing, I think with Gary DeSarcine or somebody, and he is screaming at me. He's I'm, I'm like, Hey, I thought he was just, you know, trying to talk to me. I'm like, yeah, I'm waving at him. I'm waving at him. Hey, what's up, butter. How you doing? What's it? He's screaming his rear end off his ass off. He was, and I thought it was just kind of messing around with me. And finally, someone he sent a bat boy to run all the way out there, and uh, 
And he said, you have Brian Butterfield's fungo in your hand. I went, holy Christ, I cannot believe it. <laughs> I looked at it, I looked at his number 55, double nickels. I looked down, I went, oh my God, I better run this down to him because he is going to be so pissed. I run, I goes, Ruben, that's five minutes of my life that I'll never get back. I'll never get those back. Yeah, I, he was, it was beautiful. Um, but uh, we, we had some really good discussions about things and I learned a lot from him. Um, I have a great deal of respect for him. And uh, obviously there's a reason why he was such a longtime coach. He was awesome. He was, he was one of my all times. I got him in Arizona in 98, 99, and he was just. He's a grinder. Oh yeah, but he was priceless. I mean, he was always upbeat, positive, hardworking. He he's just your prototypical what you would think of as a coach. Um, I'm just gonna leave this. Did did you see the, uh, the the cupped bat and the ball fungo theory that he had? No, I'm not, I'm not sure if I do. Man, I was hoping I was gonna get some help from you on that. One. Show Walter would have a, a, every morning would have a meeting room, everybody in it, and Butterfield did this. I'll call it a skit because it was a joke, but he would cup the baseball on the end of the the fungo bat and, and run through the scenario of why it would you know what he's going to do with it when he gets out in the field, and for the uneducated young guys that were in the room, they were like clueless how the whole thing was going to work. And it ended up being this big joke, but he would run through that one. And then um, the handstand in the shower. Oh, yeah. I've heard about that one. I've heard that one, about that one. I haven't seen yeah, it, but that. I've heard about that. <laughs> he, he, was, he was a colorful man. There's no question about it, man. He was entertaining. That one will never get out of my brain. Oh, I will man. tell you, we, when we worked together on the base running stuff and we both had the same sort of mentality about taking an extra 90 feet and, you know, really bearing down. And, and the guys in Boston were great. They were coached well. They were prepared well. It was it was a joy to be with those guys because they really wanted to be good in every aspect of the game. And, and that's I mean, as far as coaching is concerned, by far the, one of the better cons, uh, experiences I could have ever had. But working with Butter, just learning from him and and. Uh, learning how to deal with things and, and uh, understanding the game even a little bit better. It was just a real joy to be around the guy and, uh, and to learn from him. It was really cool. Very good. It, I have to take it back to the sixties for a minute. It, just because you were so young when your, your father's big league career ended was, were you aware of him in the big leagues? Like, I mean, by the time he was done, you were, I think three or four years old. So probably not much in the really of recollection. And then, uh, hung around there in the minors for a little bit after that. Um, to what extent were you aware of what he was up to in baseball when you were a young child? Yeah, I guess my, my earliest memories of him being in, uh, in baseball as a player was whether he was with Anaheim with the angels um, very late in his career. He yep. uh, played, I think it was 69. I think it was four or five years old. Um, he played with Jim Fergosi. was kind of Jim Fergosi's backup. I got a quick story about that. So Jim Fergosi yes. uh, was the everyday shortstop. And uh, and back then, you know, spring training was when spring training rolled around, those guys basically played themselves into shape. That was their time to get themselves back and to get their legs underneath them and all that stuff. So they played a lot during spring. It was it's not like now where you get one at bat and you're out of the game and you know. These guys played a lot so that they can get their bodies back into shape, get their sea legs underneath them, right? Well, 
he took a day off in spring training and my dad played shortstop for him in one of the spring training games. And my dad played so sweetly and so smoothly at short. My dad was a very, very, very good shortstop. Um, he, he saw that he was watching from the bench and watched the game. He said, he comes up to my dad, he goes, Hey, Mexican, that's the last <laughs> time you're playing. You're done. <laughs> you can't say that stuff anymore. No, said, you're sitting down. You're sitting down, pal. You're not playing any more games because he didn't want the manager. I think it was Gene Mock at the time because my dad had played with Gene Mock before. He said, that's it. You're not Wally pipping my ass. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yeah, pretty funny. Pretty cool. Well, and uh, Roland Heeman was the GM of that team, another legend who we've lost. Oh, was he really? Yeah. So um, it's funny the web we weave when we talk about baseball because, um, you know, when we look at your career – you played Stanford. You were drafted by the, the Angels. You were from the East Coast. You played for the Phillies. Um, your your pops played for the Phillies early, finished with the Angels. I mean, the the web that just kind of continues. Yeah. You've gotten to um, be involved with the Phillies across, obviously, multiple different levels. Um, you know, it, it is the great unifier. It's the great uh, web of, of connections, which... I think is what makes this show as much fun for me. I can't speak for Greg, but uh, I assume he's probably pretty, pretty similarly inclined. No, I yeah, I got, I yeah, I got to I'm sorry. Go ahead, Greg. No, I just, I was saying, I just, I, I have a blast doing this and talking to you guys. I mean, I hadn't seen, I haven't seen you in years. I might've run across you in the upstairs somewhere. If I was doing an Orioles game versus the right. Phillies or, you know, caught you for a couple minutes, but you had the GM hat on or, it's been so it's been a while, but uh, no, I just love having you guys on talking baseball, you know, throwing stories out there. And I was going to start you down the path of Mark Marcus and Stanford because you guys were uh, the dynasty of the mid 80s as much as, you know, as much as anybody in the country. Yeah. And I mean, that's a perfect example of like having multiple athletes. I mean, a lot of our guys on our team were guys who played other sports. Um, we had toy cook was our center fielder. He was a, he was a D back and an all pro D back. Um, he was our uh, everyday center fielder. Um, we had Jim price. who was a tight end for the Stanford. He was a was right-handed pitcher. We had, uh, all types of guys playing different. Walt Harris was one of our right fielders. Um, he was a, uh, I think he was a strong safety for the Stanford football team. So, Uh, There's a whole uh, slew of players, even John Elway before me, John Elway was a right fielder there at Stanford. And, uh, um, but, but I I think that that's a perfect example of trying to get the best athlete and get them on the field, right. Get them on the field and try to have them perform. And so um, I was really fortunate to, to play with some great players. I mean, Jack McDowell and Ed Sprague and uh, John Ramos, who was my real close friend, he was a high round draft pick. We were the same year. David Esker is now the head coach at Stanford. Um, was probably my best, one of my, if not my best friends. Um, and we got a chance to win, you know, the College World Series in 87. Um, Mark Marquis, uh, you either loved him or hated him, right? You either loved him or hated him. I loved him because he made you play baseball he made you bust your ass he 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 held you accountable for being a good baseball player and and uh and i had no problem with that uh, some people didn't like that uh, some people didn't you know would shy away from that but for me it was great um he was a kind kind man but when it came to being on the baseball diamond man it was time to win baseball games he taught me the importance of winning every single time every time you put that stanford uniform on man it's a w 
And if it's not, then it's a failure. And I love that attitude. I, uh, I love the Ed Sprague callback because I just happened to be watching a game on YouTube yesterday that was, uh, it was the Padres and the Reds in 2000 and Ed Sprague was playing first base for the Padres. And I didn't remember any of those things occurring. I remember him as a catcher with the Blue Jays or an infielder with the Blue Jays. And uh, so I was like, what in the heck's going on here? It was, it was a game where Barry Larkin had five hits, you know, obviously Barry Larkin's a stud, but I was just thinking to myself, I don't remember this even happening. And sure enough, two days later, he's traded to the Red Sox. They release him. And I think he ends up back in San Diego by the end of the season. But um, so first of all, though, I mean, it's not fair enough that you guys are smart enough to go to Stanford, but you have to be good at sports too. I have to admit, I'm, I'm a little bit envious. Well, I will tell you that we were small fish in big pond there, brother, because <laughs> every single person was either all state or all American in every single damn sport. It was yep. crazy. <laughs> um, it, 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 it was really, it was, uh, I mean, every time you looked right or left, I mean, somebody was like either, you know, the, the, the greatest swimmer of all time and in, in some school and then, you know, Olympic swimmer. And then you had, I mean, it was crazy. Wow. Um, so you, you got humbled pretty quickly there, not just, uh, academically but athletically as well but um it was a it was as good a choice as i could have ever made for me I, a lot of people were surprised that i that i chose to do it um i was recruited to some other schools in the east coast but uh but it was probably the most uh important and the best decision i think i ever made what was it a big culture shock going from philly to palo alto it, it to me it wasn't uh and maybe if it was going the other way it would have been tougher <laughs> yeah i'm sure of that um uh, uh, I, I, I just, uh, again, it was like, you know, you go from being in a big, big fish, uh, in a small pond to just the very opposite, but, um, but it's just, uh, to me, it was about going and challenging myself the best way I could do that. Um, and it was both academically and athletically and what better place to do it at, you know? Right. So yeah. I, I have you here under the pretenses of asking you about a team you played for, but uh, I don't think it's going to be the one you think it is. Okay. The 1995 Buffalo Bison. Bisons. The Bisons. I, I, it always sounds the weird. Bisons. Um, and we'll talk about the 93 Phillies because obviously you can't oh. have you on the show and not talk about the 93 Phillies, but. Uh, <laughs> I yeah, I got I, I got to have stories on the 93 Phillies. I got to yeah. have, I got to have your memories of the 95 Bison. Yeah, we're going to run into overtime, so we got to be careful. Um, what, what sticks out to me, and it's from a previous conversation with Greg on this very show, was how going into 95, they were in a similar labor situation, strike versus lockout. We don't have to differentiate. But what Greg said was he signed with Cleveland because he knew he had to get out in front of finding a job because when everything ended, it was going to be a lot of guys vying for not as many jobs. Now. When I look at the baseball reference page for this 1995 team, I mean, holy smokes, it's all dark blue ink. It's guys who played in the big leagues, who were about to play in the big leagues, who were 30-something and had played in the big leagues. Um, when people ask if a great college team could beat a terrible pro team, I always get pissed because the answer is, of course not. But I wouldn't be shocked if your Buffalo team could have finished third in the AL Central in 1995. I will tell you right now that that is by far the most talented minor league team I have ever played for and will ever see. Uh-huh. Has to be. It's not even close because you're right. There are guys, I mean, you sprinkle every one of those guys. Uh, I think you start off with the catchers. It was uh, Brooke Fordyce and Jesse Levis. 
Yep. Uh, at first base, I think it was Herbert Perry and Tim Coast. Was Tim Coast? Well, I think he was. Costo. I think yep. it's Costo. Tim Costo. Uh, we had Tori Lovello and Casey Candell playing second base. We had uh, uh, the one you Billy Ripken playing shortstop every day, playing his <laughs> ass off at shortstop. I mean, yep. it, just an absolute treat. I think David Bell at some point was playing third base and yep. before he got traded. And then um, the outfield, the out, was, the, the, the out, the outfield was Brian Giles, Jeremy Burnitz, and myself in center field. Now, wow. I suck compared to those guys. These guys were studs. I mean, we're talking about – and then the pitching staff. We had like Julian Tavares, Chad OJ. We had Joe Rowe was a pitcher of the year. that he won 17 games. Yep. Um, Future twin. I got to see him with the twins. I, in like I, I'm trying, trying to run off the rest of these guys. There's just so many good players. Uh, I mean, Greg, they were so, I mean, we think John Farrell probably was on that team. Yeah, right. I, in the big I, leagues. On that team. I had him the next year in Detroit. So I was like, did 95 I was with him too? Or I couldn't remember. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I played with John in '94 and '95. I, I I'm telling you, there were some players. Um, we had Joe Klink at the left lefty. Joe Klink was was smoking heaters and throwing spinning left. <laughs> uh, dude, it was the best, man. Yeah, it was you, a treat. It and was that a treat. There's an entire pitching staff of guys you. Albie Lopez. Mention. Yep, Albie, Albie Lopez. Lopez. Paul Shuey, Jim Poole. Paul uh, Shuey. Brief. Oh my God. Um, but uh, like you said, Chad OJ, uh, Jason Grimsley, who was around for a very long Grims, time. Yeah. Uh, baby oh Danny Graves got a couple innings that year. Todd Froworth, uh, Alan Embry. Oh, um, that's right. Mark Clark. I mean, the blue oh, ink yeah. is, is absolutely incredible here. Uh, offensively, Lloyd McClendon. That's um, right. Lloyd, Lloyd was on the team. <laughs> Louis Lopez. Uh, but I have oh, to say, God. I have to say, I think that Brian Giles might be the, one of the most underrated big league players of his generation. I mean, just, he was an incredible hitter. Um, and I feel like he just does not get enough love for how good he was. Hey, he was a very, very good hitter. I mean, listen, uh, he was as impactful of Pittsburgh Pirates as, as there has been since, uh, yeah. I guess, since uh, Mac, the, uh, the guy who was, who played in Philadelphia this past, past year, I'm brain locking on his name now, but um uh mvp type player mccutcheon um, mccutcheon cutch and i'm yeah. like i mean he's he was as impactful a, a, a pittsburgh pirate as there was in, uh, until cutch rolled around how uh you'd been in some clubhouses before to that point i mean you were in your age 30 season so big league minor league all that yeah what what's a what's a minor league clubhouse like with all those guys because i have to imagine i mean keep in mind like Jeremy Burnett's is 26, David Bell is 22, but at the same time, Lloyd McClendon's 36, you're 30, Billy Ripken's 30. There's just got to be a, an eclectic mix of where if I look at it now, I'm like, oh yeah, all these guys played in the big leagues. Well, they were all at different parts of their evolution. Some not knowing if they'll ever play in the big leagues, some not knowing if they'll ever get back to the big leagues. And that competition, knowing that even if you play your, your ass off, you're also looking to get onto an absolutely stacked 95 Cleveland team. Um, that's got to be just a fascinating dynamic. And obviously both of you guys can speak to it. Well, I'll, 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 I'll speak to this. I've talked to um, psychologists, sports psychologists, and one of the things they said that they would love to sit, if they had the time to do it, would love to sit on a AAA team like that or back then in the 90s. Mm -hmm. and sit on a triple team, triple A team, because basically back then you had the guys who were coming up, who were going to be studs, the guys who were highly touted, the guys who were on the way back down, 
the guys who were just trying to hold on. I mean, you had all types of um, different levels of players, and that's what you had in this club. But uh, the beauty of the of this club was that we still played to win baseball games, and and that was that was pretty cool. I mean, not everybody loved each other all the time. There's a couple fights in there in that clubhouse from time to time, even best friends fighting from time to time. But the reality of it was um, we all still played to win baseball games. And yes, we were trying to get to the big leagues. There's no mm -hmm. question about that. I was uh, the first one to tell you that's that was the goal to get back to the big leagues and be back in the into the promised land. But um, but if you were going to do a, like a psychological study or a sports psychology study on like how people deal with, you know, different levels of, uh, of where you are in your career, that would have been a heck of a place to start. <laughs> yeah. That was, uh, I mean, the, I think the only downside was playing in Buffalo in April. No question. <laughs> Cold, baby. Downside. I mean, I loved going into that clubhouse because you had, Joe Clink gave me the theory of you never, what was it? Overexposure in this game will kill you. <laughs> he was perfectly content sitting in the bullpen and not pitching that night because if he has a bad night, then he's getting seen by somebody. And if he has a good night, that's what he's supposed to do anyway. So he's like going, just fine, not pitching, overexposure. <laughs> and I'm like looking at him going, that's actually really deep. You know, when you think about it, going, deep thoughts of Joe Blink. If I don't play tonight, I can't screw anything up. And I was like, I gotta tell you, yeah. And yeah, then, then you had two of the greatest goofballs in a clubhouse in Kendall <laughs> and Billy Ripken. It was unbelievable. Oh, there was just, I felt bad for the young guys, like Herb Perry, who's just yep. kind of a quiet guy. Yep. And Lopez and all these young guys are in this clubhouse with all these dominating personalities. It had to be just sitting there going, is this what it's like? Yeah, even, even a guy like David Bell had been around baseball, you know, obviously from his family and such forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, even he had to be looking and looking around and going, this is crazy, man. This is nuts. I mean, going through an airport with those guys was just oh. a treat. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it, and, and you know what? Um, they made being in AAA, which is not the greatest place to play, they made it being fun. It was about as close yeah. to being in the big leagues as you possibly could. And, and the organization, you got to give the Bisons um, the organization and Brian Graham, who was the manager, you got to give those people a lot of credit because to be able to handle that type of group, that's really tough, man. You got to be an awfully good leader to be able to handle like, like all those personalities and all everybody trying to get to the same place, but in different stages of their careers. Um, but great franchise, really good place to play. I, I, you're right. I mean, it's too damn cold, too yeah. damn cold in April. I was, but, rooting, um, I was rooting for snow outs in a couple hours in the clubhouse right. and get your workout in and go home because oh, it was man. miserable. But yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, Brian Graham, to hold that thing together, um, that was thoroughly impressive. Yeah, pretty good effort. And he's a great baseball man. He was with the Orioles for many, many, many years. I guess he's not with them anymore, but uh, he, he should be with somebody. Um, yeah. Can you guys, because it's something I'll never experience, never have, can you contextualize for a, a schmuck like me the difference between AAA and the big leagues? Because oh. I think of it, because because I think of it as like you would fight like hell to get back. I mean, and obviously I know guys do, but um, I just I can't imagine a bigger gap between the haves and the have-nots in sports than, I mean, not even the backup quarterback to the starting quarterback is is this level. This is uh, 
you know, from the outhouse to the penthouse, basically. Well, you you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's to, I, I used to liken it to heaven, heaven and hell. Okay, well, that's fair. <laughs> that's where yeah. that's where I was at. Buffalo's mighty, especially if you had an opportunity to. Although you know, being in Buffalo or places, there are different places I played that are that were actually great where they got treated really well. But yeah. when you think about it, I mean, obviously the money is one thing, but just treat the way you're treated, the way you fly, the, the hotels you live in. All the different perks, I mean, the haves and the have-nots, as far as I'm concerned. Now, I mean, there are certain guys, like I would go into different cities and like I would tip certain guys enough in the clubhouse where I'd have like a bucket of beer by my locker afterwards <laughs> because I've been around so long and, and they knew I would tip them really well or whatever. And you would be treated well there. But um, but when you get to the big leagues, man, it's it's heaven. It's heavenly and you don't want to go anywhere else. You so really April just don't. April in Buffalo is a cold day in hell, literally speaking. Oh, no question. <laughs> I, I was rooting for snow outs, man. I really was. I was fine with snow outs. <laughs> Same thing. But give me, uh, Ruben, give me, okay, you, you gave us a little bit of the feel of the difference between the exterior. What's the difference between the pitching in AAA <laughs> and then you come up? And, yeah, yeah. It's well, the one through five of the week that you're going to face, you're going to face the number one guy. You're going to get a number five guy. You know, today's game's different where it's going to be a bullpen rush of a whole bunch of arms, but back then it wasn't so much. So give us a, a viewpoint from the hitting side. So I had the great fortune of having to face the, uh, the, the, the tremendous four and five of the Atlanta Braves for a lot of years. And so you're basically facing a number one every time out. You're, mm -hmm. you're facing Glavin, Smoltz, uh, Maddox, uh, Merker, Avery. Um, Avery. I mean, you, you, there, and, then, and then you got Wallers and all they got. And then, I mean, it, it's no, there's no fun there. But, um, but generally speaking, you know, you would die to get to that fourth or fifth guy because um, he just wasn't as quality a pitcher and um, and you had a chance to do some damage there but the thing that the, the biggest difference I was a pretty darn good um, offensive player as a minor leaguer I could I could handle uh, mistakes well I could you know I, I I could set pitchers up I could do different things that I could not do in the major leagues because in the major leagues they exploited your your weaknesses I couldn't hit a breaking ball or a changeup from the left side. I knew it. Everybody on the planet knew it. And every time they threw it, I wasn't out. So um, a right hand, it was a little different. I could handle pitches a little bit better, but I had to try to battle to put myself into a position to just have some success. But when you're in the big leagues and they, and, and they, they can absolutely exploit your weakness to the nth degree. And that's why I never really had a ton of success in the major leagues because I had weaknesses that I couldn't, I could not combat. And um, that was the difficulty for me. Now, there were times when hey, certain guys didn't have a great changeup or certain guys didn't have a great breaking ball. And I said, okay, throw that, throw that slider in there for me, man, because I can whack that one. Um, but um, but, but the, the, the reality was they, once, they found that, once they found that weakness on you, man, you were screwed. <laughs> we, I, I, I assume we can move on to the 93 Phillies. Is that fair? <laughs> Yeah, we can do that. I was just now. Nah, I mean, I I just love you know love the baseball and and the difference you know down to AAA was me facing guys. You're going. They have more weaknesses. It's now 
where do I want to start picking on? And will you ever make the adjustment? And if you won't, then I'm just going to stay here all day. And, and so then, but you get to the major leagues and the weaknesses are a lot smaller. Yep. You know, and yeah, okay. You, you don't, you don't hit the slow stuff. Great. Well, at some point I'm going to have to, I can't go strike one, strike two, strike three with three curveballs. It just not that easy. You're going to have to see a fastball and, you know, if I don't locate it, well, you got your knock, you know, yep. so yep. you're making it sound a lot easier to get you out than it really was. Cause it wasn't that easy. It's just, you know, like you said, not everybody's got a curveball. landing everything for a strike. You know, you're disciplined, you know what you're doing. It's not, you're, you're making it sound a lot easier to get you out than it was because it, it was, you know, you were a major league hitter. Yeah, your weakness that you had some spots, but if I don't hit them, I'm behind in the count, and now I'm going right into your strength. Yeah, and that's the same thing. You're right. I and mean, the same thing with pitching. I mean, if you don't, if you don't make your pitch, um, and that's that, that's the biggest I think thing that I that I viewed as a as an evaluator. To me, it was about <clears throat> like watching a pitcher pitch in the minor leagues and going, "Wow, this guy's got great stuff," but but does he throw major league strikes or does he throw minor league strikes? And there's a difference because if he throws a major league strike, he's hitting, he's commanding that pitch. He's commanding the breaking ball. He's commanding his fastball. He's commanding it. He's putting it not in a third, but he, he's putting it in a spot. Now that, that pitch he can get away with in the minor leagues. He can't get away with that in the major leagues. That ball is getting whacked off the wall somewhere because it may be a good pitch, but if he's not getting it all the way in off the plate, he's not getting in on that guy. And that ball is going to be launched somewhere. Same sort of thing, pitcher to hitter. I mean, uh, and, and hitter to pitcher. I mean, you, it's the same sort of thing. And, uh, and it's, it, it is amazing how talented you don't realize that, that there it's all baseball. It's 90 feet and all the other business, but the reality of it is, the uh, and you think about this. I think Len Sakata told me this one time when I was in AAA. He said, you, you're, you're one of the best athletes on the planet right now if you're a major leaguer. You have to understand that. You're like a, a small percentage of a small percentage of the people who ever played this sport. You're in the big leagues. That's how good they are. <laughs> and you're thinking to yourself, wow. You know, and when you start putting it in that kind of perspective, you're like, wow, these guys are really, really good. These guys are really good. Okay. Can I get philosophical for a second between you guys? To what extent is the cat and mouse game of, and, and maybe matching the two of you up at the plate and on the mound is a good one. If you are aware that you're not going to be very good at hitting a breaking ball and that's Greg's strength, or if you look at a statistic and it says a guy's allowing a 150 batting average on his slider, well, you can't build an entire repertoire out of just sliders. I mean, unless you're Matt Whistler last, uh, last year. Um, how do you play that cat and mouse game of my strength, your strength, or the fact that if Greg throws you 3 million curves, maybe at one point that becomes something you can actually hit. You know, you can't keep beating a guy's weakness because these guys are so good, they'll eventually turn that weakness into at least an average, if not a strength. Am I, am I making sense here? Yeah, you're making a lot of sense. Um, Greg, I don't know if you want to answer this one first. I can go last. Uh, no, you know what? It. I couldn't, I couldn't throw five curveballs to a guy because I, I mentally, why mentally, I would start going, okay, that was a really good one. This is going to be the betterest ever. And at some point 
my effort level is going to come off and I'm, I'm going to make it, I'm going to leave it spinning. It's going to be three revolutions short. I got beat, you know, quite a bit on third time curve, you know, three straight curveballs, And the third one's going to be the best ever. And it's about three spins short and it's a double off the wall, you know, because he'd seen two really good ones. I try to make it better. And that's where, you know, a lot of my problem was. So if I'm attacking a guy and I know he's a fastball guy, as long as I know he's not going to necessarily, you know, 100% jump me early with a first pitch fastball, I'm going here, here's best fastball right here, right now. If I get ahead, here comes three curveballs, and I got you. If you're going to jump my first pitch for a fastball, then you're in a good position to hit, and we see what we got. And well, for me, on the flip side, on, for me, I, gotta, I, I know what my strength is. I can hit anything firm. It doesn't matter whether it moves or cuts or whatever the case may be. I can make that adjustment. And so I have to be prepared to, to whack that fastball when I get it. And if I miss it, I'm screwed. So I got to make sure that I whack it. And then after that, if I get into a two-strike count, then I'm just battling. Then I'm just trying to put the ball in play and, 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 and battle. Um, hopefully, he spins one that doesn't have the great break. May, hopefully, he leaves one up out over the plate. Maybe he drops one down in my nitro zone down and in or something like that that I can get to. Um, but, but, um, but I guess the best way to not to, to be able to handle, um, you know, handle your weaknesses is, but not missing your strengths. Like when he throws that fastball, I better not miss it or I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> or I'm you, got, you, got, you got windows every, every game I screwed up. I went back and looked and I had a one pitch, a one pitch that flipped the whole inning game for me. It, it came down to me not making one pitch. And um, it was amazing. It was almost every game, one pitch. Yeah, and listen, execution, that's the thing that the big leaguers did. I mean, the great big leaguers and the really good closers and the really good pitchers, they, they, they executed their pitches. And when they executed them, you're out, man. It's yeah. just too difficult. It's just too <laughs> difficult. Well, I think right, we, we, got to, we got you for 10 minutes. We got we got to do the '93 Phillies. Yeah, right? yeah, <laughs> we do. Uh, sorry, that, uh, I got I got the opportunity to play with a couple of them over in Japan in '92. It, it was just a treat. Yeah, I, I, I will tell you. So I'll, I'll, I'll kind of go down the lineup. I and mean, Lenny Dykstra was uh, as whacked a guy as there possibly was, but he loved he loved he was a red light player. Loved the limelight, man. One of the best prolific playoff players in the history of the game. I mean, look at his numbers are ridiculous. Mm -hmm. This guy loved to play when it was on the line, when it was not on the line and the team sucked or whatever, not, not the same guy. I think they'd love but, him in today's game with all these walks. Dude, he could do so many different things on the field and he just loved to play. Darren Dalton, uh, God bless him. God rest his soul was the greatest leader I've ever been around in my life. Mm -hmm. um, he was a great friend. Uh, unbelievable leader. Uh, you talk about like coming to play every day and preparing something. I mean, he would come in at 12 o'clock every day for a seven o'clock game and he would do all types of shit to get himself <laughs> ready for, to play a baseball game. That's I a mean, catcher. this guy, this guy had like 27 uh, operations on his knees. His body was beaten up. He wanted to play every day. Um, all you had to do is look at you if you had a bad game and you knew exactly how, how badly you screwed up or, or he gave you a nice nod because that, that meant you had a great game. John Cruck was night was crazy. Also, 
Um, and now I get to work with him on the broadcasts. He, um, <laughs> he literally could wake up, grab himself a hot dog uh, on a day game, <laughs> chow down three or four dogs, step up to the plate that have not swung a bat and barrel the ball and hit a late, late laser to left field. I mean, he was, uh, he was born to hit, man. He could lay, he could lay uh, his barrel on a bullet. Um, God, who else on that team? Just uh, it, I, I, Dave Hollins is one of my best friends now. Um, and I hired him as a scout. Great was a great pro scout. Um, he kind of took me under his wing as well. And I got a chance to play against him all the way through the minor leagues when he was with the Padres before he got rule five. And I was with the angels. We kind of uh, came up through our systems around the same time. Uh, but I got a chance to play with him in Philadelphia. And you're talking about uh, talking about having two personalities, baby. He, uh, he had uh, Dave Hollins and then he had Mikey <laughs> and Mike, when Mikey came out, <laughs> when Mikey came out, he, uh, but as far as a teammate being in a foxhole, oh my God, if you were in a fight or you were trying to battle somebody, you're trying to win, dude, that's the man you stand right behind. <laughs> Probably most famous he, for being traded for David Ortiz too. Oh, really? Was he really? Yep. Twins, when they traded him to Seattle, got David Ortiz, then David Arias as the player to be named later if I want to oh, know that. That. I didn't, I didn't know that but he, he that. I was ex- I, if I would have known more about the game as a as a 10 year old which again I was 10 it was 1996 uh, I think I would have liked Dave Hollins even more I love those guys who get on base three guys with 100 walks this this team might have been one of the best teams at getting on base that I've ever seen yeah they and they grinded it out they you know you talk about passing the baton right they they, they they believed, everybody believed in their role. They believed in that guy behind him. We had three platoons on that team. And Jim Fergosi did a spectacular job of like putting all those guys in the, in a position to, to have success. In left field, there was a platoon of Incavilia and Thompson. In center field was Dykstra. In right field, it was West Chamberlain and Jim Eisenreich. At second base, it was a platoon of Mickey Morandini and Mariano Duncan. Uh, Kevin Stocker came up in the middle of the year and played uh, shortstop. And then you had Hollins at third and uh, Crucky at first and, and Dutch behind the plate. I mean, it was a team. Um, uh, all they wanted to do is win baseball games. That was it. All they cared about was winning baseball games. And boy, oh boy, did they do it. I don't um, think we'll ever see another team like this. It was awesome. And, and you know, to, to Lee Thomas's credit was a GM and Ed Wade was his assistant at the time. I mean, they basically hit on every one of those guys. There was a bunch of guys that were signed as free agents, like one-year deals, two-year deals, um, and they almost all, to a man, and you got to give credit to Jim Pagosi to this, to a man almost had, like, career years, almost every single one of them. And it was because Jim put those guys in positions to have success. I, I want to ask you about one guy because I don't know much about him, um, and he's actually probably part of the reason Kirby Puckett got to the big leagues when he did. Uh, Jim Eisenreich, actually, with yeah, Minnesota guy. Um, had trouble with uh, the Metrodome and Tourette syndrome and all that, and eventually overcame it and had a really nice career with the Royals and the Phillies. Um, what was he like? Because uh, I, you know, that's a, that's a weak spot for me. Twins wise is right around the time I was born and a little before then, um, you know, what kind of teammate was he? What kind of guy was he? I mean, he was awesome. I mean, they teased him. They messed with his, his Tourette's. I mean, and nobody was immune there, man. They, 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 they called him Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, oh, no. <laughs> that, was his, that was his, that was his nickname. That's I mean, time. But, that's really timely. That is really timely. Oh boy. But, but what's amazing, what's, what was amazing about him and what it was about, it was almost like a bunch of misfits on this mm-hmm. team. Right. Um, 
But Jim Eisenreich had the most simplest swing and approach at the plate, dude. He could just, it was nice and simple and back and right through. And I mean, he hit like 350 that year, some crazy number. Yeah. He was a base hit machine and he played excellent in the outfield. I think at that time, just for him, I think personally, I'm not sure. I'm not totally sure, but I think the meds that he had to take for Tourette's, I think they got him all kind of straightened out. Mm-hmm. And he, I think that he was uh, able to perform at his highest level just because I think they got his all kind of his meds uh, uh, straightened out. And I think he ended up going and playing with the uh, Marlins and helping that team yep. win the yep. World Series over there too, when Dutch went over there. But um, just a great – first of all, he's a funny guy. He's really funny. He's a pretty damn good golfer too. Uh, just saw him recently at a tournament, but um, uh, just, just a simple hack, man. And he ran well and he ran the bases well. And he did a lot of things like that people, that people that wouldn't, wouldn't wow you if you yeah. watched him, but it yeah. wowed his teammates because he did things. So uh, he did things. So uh, I don't know, consistently, just so consistent. Uh, yeah. You know what? You might want to look this one up. I thought he was, his batting average with bases loaded was just something stupid. In 93? No, career. His whole I'll, career. I'll still look it up because uh, that's what it I was, do. But he was, yeah, he was a pain to face because you knew he was going to be on plane, close to being on time, and you just make you make a mistake and you get something on a plate and he is on time and on plane and it's a knock, double, something, line drive, laser into a gap and the dude could run. Yes, he could. Yeah, it looks like it, somewhere in the high 300s. So, yeah, uh, tough out with um, with uh, guys on base. I, I want to ask you kind of an off-the-wall question, but uh, if you were a professional wrestler in 93, who would have your tag team partner been? Who was the most, like, the guy you would want to be in the foxhole with if you were uh, going into battle and, in, like, say, WWE back then? It'd be no question be Dave Holland. But I will tell you <laughs> that uh, that Dutch, Dutch would be right there. And you know who else was a badass and a crazy son of a bitch was uh, Kurt Schilling. Well, Kurt yeah, Schilling okay. would not back down. Kurt, Kurt was yeah. nuts. He loved getting into scraps, man. When we got into fights, he was right in the middle somehow. We're like, Kurt, what are you doing, dude? You're going to break a hand somewhere. <laughs> did, you, did you have an idea of what the future would hold for a guy like that in, in 1993? Well, I mean, like being a bulldog and all that stuff, you know, on the mound. So it's funny. I used to give Kurt a lot of shit because um, when I played with him in 96, 97 and 98, he, uh, you know, we didn't have very good teams Mm -hmm. and, but he was really good and he would never like his record would always be right around 500. I'm not sure what all the numbers are, but he was like a 500 pitcher, right? You see, and back then it was about wins, right? It wasn't necessarily about like all the other metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and you knew he was a great pitcher, but I used to give him shit all the time. I said, dude, you're not that good. You're just a 500 pitcher. <laughs> he used to get pissed off. He used to get pissed off. And he was really dominant. I mean, he was really, really good pitcher. I mean, a lot, you can say a lot of things about Kurt Schilling, but the man, when he took the baseball, he was a, he competed. Um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but uh, one, uh, one thing that I watched growing up were these baseball blooper videos. And there is an entire segment dedicated to Larry Anderson using spray on hair. I don't know if it's spring training or what it is. Uh, and then he, I actually got to tell him about that at the press box at target field, actually probably the same year I met Oli here at target field. But um, I tell you what, uh, for a 40 year old pitcher, he could really bring it back then. You know, he, he, I mean, he lived and died by a slider. He was a slider master and it was a damn good one. And he basically, basically, I'm, I'm throwing it again. 
and he'd spin it up there and he'd get people out. Um, but, uh, you know, Larry's a, I mean, obviously a character and yep. a fun guy to be around. And it's funny because I'll, 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 I'll tell you this quick story. I mean, I, I just remember how important it was in 93 when I got recalled from the minor leagues. I played probably in about, I don't know, parts of maybe 30 or 60 games or something that year. I don't know how many bats I had a pretty good year in, in my, the role that I played. But um, it was it was amazing how important it was, even though people were goofing around and having fun and he was as happy go lucky as anybody. He would be the first one to tell you, hey, man, we're not this is no joke. We're playing baseball. We're having fun here. But it's all about the W, brother. Mm -hmm. and, and you better figure out you better get your rest. You better get yourself ready. And uh, this we're having fun in this clubhouse. But the only reason why we're having fun in this clubhouse is because we're winning baseball games. And so uh, it, it was interesting. He ended up becoming a very good pitching coach for us now, obviously, uh, doing the radio uh, and stuff. And I actually asked him to be our pitching coach one year. He's not. I'm staying in the booth, baby. It's a lot safer up there. Can I, can I, can I ask one more? <laughs> yeah. What do you make of uh, Eddie Gordado's kid playing you on a TV show? Oh, dude, it was so cool. And I did not know that it was his kid until he came to Boston and Eddie was the, um, was the, uh, bullpen coach for Minnesota. Yeah. Time. I saw, I, I used to see Nico running around the clubhouse when I was covering the twins back then and had no idea that was what he was up to. So I had, <laughs> eventually found out and he brought his kid to Boston when I was coaching and we ended up taking a couple pictures together that he was playing me. And I mean, it's an amazing world, right? It's a, it's yeah. a, it's amazing. Uh, it's an amazing cir circular world, but, um, what a great kid and damn good actor. I mean, uh -huh. you know, unfortunately, unfortunately he had to play me in that show, but, um, uh, but he was, he was a, he's a really good kid, man. Really kind. Eddie did a great job of raising his, uh, at least that one kid. I, I, um, and it was really nice to get to get to know him. Boy, Eddie would have fit in with that 94 Phillies bunch, I think, or 90, I'm sure he 93, sorry. I'm, I'm sure he would have. I'm <laughs> sure he would have. Only anything from you? No, brother, I appreciate it, man. It's been uh, it's been a blast, and and uh, love having you on, and and just talking ball, and and you know, hearing what's going on with you sounds really good, and and uh, if we can do anything to help, we'll we'll push it out there. Right, uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, happy to be on. Good to talk baseball with you guys and reminisce a little bit. Yeah, and uh, happy to do it. We'll have to circle back because there's so much we left. Um, you yeah. know, your entire GM tenure. Uh, probably about another two hours worth of Philly stories. There's a lot left there, but thank you so much for the time. Happy to be on Brandon. Great to be with you, Oli. All right, Ruben. Great seeing you. I'll catch right. up with you soon, man. Thank check, you. Guys, check him well. out on Twitter at R-A-J-R underscore 20. For Greg Olson, this is Brandon Warren signing off saying thank you so much for checking out that 90s baseball yeah. pod powered by Access Twins, and we'll catch you next week. Peace.